the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, thank you, and welcome. It's a Tuesday, 28th day of August, in case you hadn't been keeping track. And at five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., Craig Roberts once again in your ear to keep you some company as uh, you make your way from home, from work, or wherever you might be headed on this evening. And as we uh, usually do each Monday through Friday, jam-packed with lots of good insights and resources. And uh, we'll, of course, share that time with you and many of our great guests. Um, a little bit later on, we're going to ask it. President of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, to check in on us. He's got a new resource available, and I'm thinking particularly for those of you that have just headed back to college or university, or if you're parents with students that are attending college and university for the first time or returning back to school, there is a new publication available, free for the asking, through Pacific Justice Institute on your child's rights on campus. It's called, very apropos, the Constitution on Campus. Every public university student should know what they have. And so uh, that look at your rights, we'll get to that conversation a little bit later on in tonight's program. Speaking of your rights, with those rights come responsibilities. One of the responsibilities is to be engaged actively in this self-governance, right? In this process of self-governance, we call America. Toward that end, we've got elected representatives in Sacramento that don't always very well represent the values of uh, values voters. That's to be sure. And so, um, one of the responsibilities you have is to be engaged with members of not only the California State Legislature but the governor on a couple of critical bills that we have been following, and to give us an update on both Senate Bill 320 and Assembly Bill 282. We are joined by the Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, Brian Johnston. Brian, as always, thanks so much for being with us. Tell us what's going on. Um, first, a bit of a background, if you would, for folks that are maybe unaware or have forgotten. Assembly Bill 282, what's that all about and why is it so dangerous? Well, Craig, and thank you for having me on. And as we've talked about, this legislature has been meeting for the last two years. They got elected two years ago. There'll be another election that's coming November. But now they're wrapping up. And so in this part of August, the Constitution in California says they have to finish by August 31st. That's Friday at midnight. They put off some pretty bad bills. One of them is Assembly Bill 282. Now, many listeners may realize that assisted suicide has, in fact, been legalized in California. We challenged it. We've won at the lower level. And then in appeals, it's gone back into effect. That bill is going to go up to the state Supreme Court, where it will be determined. In the meantime, it's still allowed to be law. So right now in California, if you have a terminal diagnosis, you can say, Doc, you know what, just kill me, get this over with. That's legal in California. 
What's not legal is for a third party, outside agents, let's say a family member who's an heir, let's say a nursing home administrator who, and this is very common, you get Medi-Cal payments for your nursing home, which are de minimis, they're not a lot, but the nursing home has to accept that as everything they get. And that's what you're paying, and then they have someone who has private insurance, and they can get double or triple that amount. Well, that nursing home administrator, if 282 passes, can approach you and say, you know, you only have a few years left, and they're going to be very, very difficult. I strongly recommend that you can just get this over with right now. It'll be painless. Your family will be better off. They won't have to worry about you. I strongly recommend you avail of the end-of-life options act. Right now, that's illegal. But if Assembly Bill 282 passes, that'll be perfectly legal. And we know this, that suicide is an emotional decision. And people are very vulnerable. The older you get, if you have an illness, a debilitation, we've talked about it before, the very famous five stages of denial. That was all about when you get a terminal diagnosis. You're going to be emotional. When you legalize manipulating someone's emotions so that they will be killed, again, this isn't about letting them die. This is about using medicine to intentionally kill a vulnerable patient. That's Assembly Bill 282. It's now gone to the governor's desk. It is on the governor's desk, and it's very important. They've misrepresented. They have said, the author said, that this is to protect doctors who do this. They need extra protection. Well, in point of fact, the, the measure doesn't say anything about doctors. And in point of fact, in California, the law that we passed was an exact duplicate of Oregon's law, and they didn't need a second bill to protect doctors. This measure actually protects the promotion of suicide by third parties. And that is so dangerous because it will make the expectation of medical suicide culture-wide. This is a devastating change in how we do medicine and the role of medicine towards vulnerable patients. That's Assembly Bill 282. It is on the governor's desk right now. We want to urge a veto. Please let the governor know if you agree. And again, if you examine the psychic element of suicide, the psychological implications, right now, in fact, the bill itself, it's ironic, Craig, the bill itself says it is a felony to encourage a suicide in California, and that'll continue. But there's an exception for the end-of-life options act. <laughs> and any third party can promote it if someone is sick. And again, they may not, they just have to say, you can call your grandma, and let's say your grandma, you can say, well, I thought she was sick enough, and so I thought it was good to encourage her. That's all you need, and you're justified under this new bill. This is a dramatic cultural shift in how we view vulnerable people. This is something that, again, because we're on a Christian station, I'll be glad to say it, the church needs to be solved. This isn't even about religion, but the church needs to be solved. The purpose of the law is to protect those who can't protect themselves. That's why that law is there. And again, it's against the law for you to, to go to a building where a crowd has gathered and there's someone on the edge of a building, and if you shout out, jump, you chicken, you should jump. That's a felony. And it should be a felony. But if you're telling someone to kill themselves simply because they're sick, 
that won't be a felony anymore. So this is an inversion of so much of what our culture is built on, the idea that every human life is significant. That's, that's the premise of the American system of laws. And we've moved so far from that. This bill is of huge significance. Assembly Bill 282, we'd like you to contact the governor, and he can be, you can get an immediate contact number and an immediate email for him. If you fill out the email form at gov.ca.gov, it's that simple address, gov.ca.gov. There's a telephone number, but there's also a form. The regular email form takes a long time, but the form on that page immediately goes to the governor and lets the governor know that the medically and emotionally vulnerable need protection from third parties that would promote and cajole and encourage them to take their lives. Give us an update, if you would, too, Brian, on another dangerous bill, this one making its way through uh, California State Senate. We've talked about it briefly. That is Senate Bill 320 that essentially would turn every college and university campus that is funded by the state of California into a large abortion clinic. Tell us what's going on here. Yes, again, it's it's very important to realize a lot of people, even well-meaning people, think, well, you know, the whole abortion debate is settled. It's about choice. We can't say anything about that. And that's nothing could be further from the truth on that. But specifically what 320 does is it now will legalize chemical abortion. And again, this is the RU-46 pill. Many people confuse that with the morning-after pill. It is not that. This is dramatically different. The young mother, she has to be pretty well along. She has to at least miss her second period. And so we know there's a human baby there, dependent on mom. RU-46 literally attacks her hormones. It changes her body, and so it no longer will give nutrition to the child in the womb, and that child begins to wither. And then there's a second regimen taken a few days later, progesterone, which causes her to expel that baby and anything that's in her uterus. Anyone who has done this, if you read about this, there's, there's actually, a, it's a pro-choice website, but they hate RU-46. It's, it's actually in the Bay Area where it's based. It's called abortionpillrisks.com, and they hate this as a form of abortion because it's so destructive to both the woman and her health. And, of course, we hate it because it'll kill a child, obviously. They see it as abusing women. But this pill would be distributed on every state college and university campus. And this is of incredible significance. Again, as I said, this is the expansion of the abortion business and industry. They want to expand it because now you don't need a physician present or involved in any way. Literally, the mother is the agent of killing her child, and she will ultimately see that baby now. Every description I have seen of this, it's, it is so difficult on the woman that goes through this. And so this pill, and I think it's ironic what it does. It isn't for uh, junior college campuses. You know, on a junior college or a commuter campus, they tend to call them. A lot of times those students live at home, and then they go to the campus and then come home. But if you go to the state uni or a state college, you're obviously, and there's many who do this, it's the first time away from home. They're 18, they want to get out, 
gang. They're living in the dorms. Freedom. And these are young women. Again, first time away from home very often. This chemical abortifacient is given to them. Parents are not informed. They're given this, and basically they're to do the abortion themselves. It's, it's incredible advancement of the abortion industry, sponsored by the state, invading now our university system. And, again, the goal of the abortion industry is to expand what it's doing, and this would be a very sweeping expansion of, of human abortion in California. And, of course, this bill is already on the assembly floor and then likely to move on to the governor. And so two steps here, contacting your member of the California State Assembly, and then as you reach out to Governor Brown, urging a veto on Assembly Bill 282, you also want to include an urging of the governor's veto on Assembly Bill, I'm sorry, on Senate Bill 320-320. Our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee for that update. All right, speaking of updates, let's uh, get updated here on traffic. We're a bit late, so let's see what's going on out there. 518 on the clock, and here Michael Bennett's got the latest on traffic. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking just before the break with Brian Johnston of the National Right to Life Committee about this one particular measure, um, Senate Bill 320, that impacts students on campuses. And it's just part of a, a broader attack and assault on rights and constitutional rights at college campuses across the nation. And nobody knows better than that. And uh, oftentimes the fight that has to be fought in order just to simply protect one's constitutional rights than at college and university campuses across the state of California. As the school year is back in session now, maybe either you directly as a student or the parent of a student are concerned with, have already run into problems with, or wonder about you or your students' rights on campus. Well, a brand new resource available through the Pacific Justice Institute called simply The Constitution on Campus writes every public university student should know. Joining me is the president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute, constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus, and as always, great to have you on the program and, um, Counselor, let's get down to some of these basics here. First and foremost, you know, for some of the old conjurers like me, uh, college university campuses used to be bastions of protection of uh, fundamental constitutional rights, the right to assembly, the right to free speech, things of this sort. And yet seemingly more and more, these rights are not only being eroded, but oftentimes uh, there's almost an in-your-face approach that challenges students to dare even stand up for their constitutional rights. Talk to us about the trend and why you felt the need for this resource. Well, the trend is uh, for universities, public universities in particular, to no longer be in the open marketplace of ideas, Craig, but rather be something very different than they, what they used to be. Uh, now they are places where you have sometimes the greatest intimidation and harassment and uh, restriction of speech and censorship uh, than any place else uh, you'll find in the country taking place at our public universities. Uh, students should be able to express their beliefs, their faith, their convictions, practice their faith and convictions uh, without uh, be having being uh, isolated or uh, demeaned by the professors in the classroom, which has greatly increased, unfortunately, uh, or by other students. 
and we at Pacific Justice thought now's the time to step up to the plate and go to bat for them with, uh, by empowering them as to what their rights are. As you deal with cases, not only here in California, but across, across the western states, and this, as we indicate, is kind of look at the, 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 the top ones that students need to be aware of. But of this list, which are the ones that, that most typically you run into of concern? Wow. Yeah, I would say one, one of the, the biggest concerns that we uh, deal with is uh, are dealing with, like, um, you know, students who, um, you know, want to, to share their faith, uh, who want to uh, evangelize on campus, and, um, and they're uh, harassed. Uh, also, right along those same lines are, are students in the classroom um, where the, the teacher openly harasses them uh, because of their faith, or, or aligns them with a hate speech, if you will, uh, <laughs> as applied to people of faith, and um, and I think that that, uh, that students often, unfortunately, they just take it. They they don't respond to it, uh, and they don't know how to respond to it. And uh, and the, the good news is that uh, such harassment from either the teachers, the faculty, uh, or students um, is not uh, acceptable in and in fact, uh, is a violation of, the, of the, the free speech rights of, of students. And to show, to demonstrate just how far this can go, and, and I know it will set some listeners back on their heel, as it certainly did I when I read this, you cite the example inside of this resource, which, by the way, is available uh, through Pacific Justice Institute. Simply go to pji.org. That's pji.org for your copy of The Constitution on Campus, writes every public university student should know they have. One of the ones, though, that really caught my attention was the right not to blaspheme in class. And you cite a case of a student attending Florida Atlantic University where the student had been given the highly offensive assignment of writing the name Jesus on a piece of paper and then asked by the instructor to throw it on the floor and stomp on it. I mean, I, I outside of maybe a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, where the most cruel forms of punishment take place. I can't imagine what would possess anyone in their right mind to ask of another person to do. Yeah, and, and that's not I mean, uncommon in terms of uh, professors openly and blatantly. I'd almost say maybe the majority of them express their hostility to people with a, a Judeo-Christian or biblical worldview. Um, and that is, is so alarming. It has increased dramatically, actually, just in the last 10 years. Uh, studies show that it's, you know, it's always been somewhat there, but nowhere near where it's been right now. Uh, students, bottom line, do not have to uh, engage in an assignment where they are told that they have to have a certain viewpoint, and only that viewpoint, in their writing assignment or in their evaluation, and, uh, and to, to have a different viewpoint, they get an F. That should be a red light flashing right there whenever that happens. Students should contact Pacific Justice. And most troubling, we've all heard cases where, for example, a classroom of students is uh, given the assignment to write about their number one hero. And inevitably, you know, a child will pick uh, George Washington or their favorite cartoon superhero, maybe dad if you're lucky. Uh, and on occasion, a child will say, well, my, my number, hero, number one hero was Jesus, and attempt to write a paper on that topic and be told in no uncertain terms, no, you can't do that. 
This is is the opposite effect and then some where you're not trying to truncate the expression of religious freedom here, but actually making a mockery of it. Oh, yes. And we see that happen as well. And uh, students need to understand that they have that right. In fact, even those in in, uh, secondary, you know, high school, junior high, elementary school, uh, cannot be excluded from having uh, writing about Jesus in in the proper you know context, like their hero or someone they look up to. But especially in colleges and universities, uh, it is uh, definitely uh, definitely protected. We've hit some of the highlights, but of course there are many, many more to take a look at. That's why we invite you to go to the Pacific Justice Institute website. Easy way to get there is simply pay pji.org. That's pji.org. Think Pacific. Justice Institute, and check out the Constitution on Campus, rights every public university student should know they have, and not only apropos for the students, but certainly for the parents of the students as well. Our thanks to Constitutional Lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Looky there, it's 5.30 exactly. All right, two seconds early. Let's get a look at traffic right now. Michael Bennett's got the latest for you from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael, it's all yours. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All of us, from time to time, have struggled with within our Christian walk, and that is hearing the voice of God. Um, We are told in John 10 and 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And for all of us that say, gee, I, I just wish I could hear God's voice more distinctly in life. It would be great if there was the loud, thundering, booming voice out of heaven that shakes you to your innermost being. And yet more often than not, when God speaks, he speaks with that still, small voice. Why is that exactly? Well, Our next guest has written a book on the very topic called Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere, newly published by Kriegel Publications. And its author, our guest today, he is the founding director of Kids of the Heart, author of a number of other best-selling books, including Is Sunday School Destroying Our Kids? Samuel Williamson, great to have you on the program. Hi, Craig. Thanks very much for, welcome, for welcoming me. I really appreciate it. It would honored. be great if God spoke in this loud, thundering, booming voice that we could know instantly, aha, there is the voice of God instructing me and making the right choices and decisions along life's highway. But in fact, God chooses other methodology. We know certainly that he can speak to us through his word. He can speak to us through others. But that sense of hearing that still, small voice directly inform ourselves, that seems to be elusive for a lot of Christians. Why is that? I think it is elusive, and I think part of the reason, Craig, is because people have this expectation that God only speaks to, you know, the high and mighty, the saints, you know, you know uh, St. Francis of Assisi, or Billy Graham, or Mother Teresa. And I think it's a false expectation, because I think Scripture's very clear when you look at all the heroes of the faith, and, and, their, and their foibles, I, I think it's very clear that God speaks to us because of his greatness and not because of our greatness. And, and we can have a confidence because his greatness is so great and our greatness is so small. But he, but he speaks to us because of his greatness. 
All right. So toward that end, then, um, it, it, part of it then has to do with our sense of, of, of perspective on our relationship. If God is speaking to us in and out of his greatness, uh, that would also require me to understand the nature of or the balance of the relationship that I have with God, would it not? It absolutely does. And, you know, the Scripture is filled with metaphors that God himself uses to teach us about our relationship with him. And he says that we are the sheep, here's the shepherd. He says that we are the servants, he is the master. We're the subjects, he is the king. But it also says we are the children, he is the father. You know, it breathtakingly intimately, he says we are the spouse and he is the bridegroom. But every one of these metaphors is a human relationship. And, you know, Craig, the essence of relationship, if you think of your, uh, of your family, of your spouse, of your friends, the essence of relationship is communication. And it's two-way communication. And... I think when we read Scripture, Scripture overflows with the idea of God wanting to speak to us, wanting us to recognize His voice. It, it's the essence of Christianity, a relationship with God. And I think God promises and mm, invites us to have a, a, a communicative, a, a, a conversational relationship with Him. All right, now let's talk about that, because that suggests, as you talk about relationship, and anybody, I think, with, with half a mind understands that in order for there to be any success in a relationship, there needs to be that sense of give and take. And that's true of marriage relationships. It's true if you want to get along with, uh, with your siblings or get along with your, uh, your offspring. Uh, but with that said, it, 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 it's kind of a curiosity in that uh, so often when we, we think about conversation with God, what we really think about or engage in is monologue. And yet what God wants is dialogues. It's not just a matter of, of God hearing from us and usually our laundry list of all the things that we want or our complaints, but then hearing back from God in return. And I think a lot of people find getting into that place where we have a sense that it's not a monologue, but rather a dialogue with God. That seems to be elusive because it requires upon us as well to be listening as well as talking. Absolutely. Craig, absolutely. And I would say that the few times that we especially want to hear him is the big times of decisions in our life, like, you know, should I become a doctor or a lawyer or a business person? Should I become a radio host, you know, or should I marry this person or that person? I think that we're, we typically mostly hope for God for the major decisions of our life. But, Craig, I don't know about anything about your relationship with your father or your parents, but, but let me ask you a question of your fondest memory of your parents. Uh, you know, if you can think back over your whole life, was it times that they lectured to you, or was it times when they just talked to you? Oh, I think it's very clear. I mean, all of us <laughs> remembering our, our childhood years recall a lot of lectures. Uh, and yet, as, as profound as those moments <laughs> might have been, uh, my, my dad, who, uh, who went to be with the Lord, Goodness I my. still, at 8 o'clock on Sunday evenings, pause... And there's that sense of, of uh, that gap, because yeah. Yeah. while we talked throughout the week at various times, uh, 8 o'clock Sunday evening seemed to be the time when the week was over with, the weekend was over with, and we had a chance to get on the phone for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it took, and just dialogue, just converse back and forth, and he'd tell his stories, and I would tell mine, and, and I, I cherish those moments probably more so than the lectures. <laughs> I, of course, absolutely, and mine's the same way. My dad and I, 
you know, high school might have been a little tougher, but I mean, I, for, for, for 30 years, my dad and I had a wonderful conversational relationship. And, and that's what I remember. And even with my wife, you know, my wife and I, we, we went on our 30th anniversary to Italy a few years ago. But really, the, the heart and soul of our relationship is when we just sit after dinner and have a cup of coffee and talk together. And it's not even, you know, earth-shattering discussions. It's just normal discussions. And I believe this is what God wants for his people. In fact, how are we going to recognize God's voice in, in, in the storm of a terrible decision if we haven't learned to recognize his voice in the calm wind of a, you know, a, an evening breeze? Mm. We, we really need to recognize God's voice in a conversation if we're going to learn to recognize his voice in those very desperate times when we have to make a hard decision. There is a reason why, and, and God certainly in his infinite power could choose to use the loud, thundering voice from the heavens, as we all uh, sort of think of, you know, via our experience in the movies. And yet God, I think, purposefully has chosen to instead speak through, as we see articulated in Scripture, through the still, small voice. And I'm going to ask you why you think that is and what we can learn from that when we come back to more of our conversation. Samuel Williamson with us today, the book Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. The new book, by the way, newly published by Kriegel Publications. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as you can order directly through Samuel's website at beliefsoftheheart.com. A brief time out. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are back to our conversation, and Samuel Williamson, our guest today, his new book, Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Now, Samuel, God being God, he can choose to communicate by any means he desires. We'll recall a time when he chose to communicate through a burning bush, as uh, Moses had the experience. Uh, we, We know that he could open up the heavens with a thunderous voice, but instead, for the most part, for most believers, um, rather than the loud, thundering voice that we would know as it shook us to our very core that it was clearly the voice of God, instead God chooses to speak in that, that still, small voice, as Scripture tells us. Why is that? Is that, is that it's got to be, God is a very purposeful God. There's got to be a reason behind that. I, I think there's two reasons, Craig, and... I think the first is, we're all familiar with the passage in First Kings, I think it's 19, but it might be 20, where God speaks to Elijah out of a still small voice. But the background of that is, Elijah has just been involved in one of the greatest miracles God does in the Old Testament. You know, there's this big contest between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God, Elijah. And Elijah builds this, you know, he puts, he puts together an altar and he puts together the wood on it, he puts a sacrifice on it, and God sends a fiery bolt down from heaven, burns up the sacrifice and the wood and the water and the stones and even the earth, and nobody changes. I mean, Elijah is expecting the people to rise up against Ahab and Jezebel. You know, if not rise up, at least he's expecting some, some protesters out front saying, we want the Lord, you know, we want the Lord, but nothing happens. And, and Elijah becomes terribly depressed, and he goes down to Mount Sinai. And that's where, it's very interesting, God says, 
an earthquake came by, but there was no, but God was not in the earthquake. A whirlwind came by, and God was not in the earthquake, in the whirlwind. And a fire came by, and God was not in the fire. And the thing that's so funny is that when God spoke to Moses, he spoke out of the fiery bush. So we spoke out of fire. When God spoke on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel, he spoke out of an earthquake. And when God spoke to Job, he did speak out of a whirlwind. So it's not that God doesn't speak in those things. But I think the deliberate contrast with this huge, spectacular miracle and not changing people's hearts is part of God's point when he finally says, and then God spoke in a still small voice. I don't think the spectacular changes us, Craig. I mean, I wish I could say if I had something spectacular would change me, but I really think it's the still, small, quiet, conversational voice of God every day that changes my heart. And, and I would think the big miracles do, but you know, Jesus did all kinds of miracles and the Pharisees didn't change their minds. And, and so I, I really do think God is saying that there's a part of us humans, maybe us humans in the Western world especially, there's a part of us that wants the spectacular and the miraculous. And I believe in the spectacular and miraculous. Please don't misunderstand me. But I think the thing that changes my heart is when I sit in my chair and I hear God say, you know, Sam, I think you were ignoring your wife. I think you should go repent to her. And it's a quiet, calm voice that has a steady assurance in his voice and so i think god really i think god has an has a invitation so my first reason that god speaks out of the still small voice instead of the spectacular is i think that's the way humans work i would say the second reason is i think god likes us to seek him and sometimes when we speak seek the spectacular we're experience, we're hoping for an emotional experience more than just to be touched by the hand and the heart and the tongue of God. So he wants us to seek him. I'm sorry for that long answer, Greg. I really appreciate your kindness. No, it's an appropriate answer, and I think it also puts things in perspective, and that is to recognize, too, that we serve a holy and righteous God. Amen. Um, <laughs> Amen. That, I'm really serious. That, that, that sense of, and I think we've, we've, we've lost this, in in the modern day world, that that sense of, uh, for example, what it meant to be a priest to enter into the holy of holies, right, right. and that tremendous sense of of respect and reverence to realize that the priest was entering into the very presence of God. Uh, people forget that so much so, um, and and Catholics listening will appreciate this. Um, a bell is rung uh, during the consecration of the host uh, during Mass. And um, a bell was also um, uh, part of uh, what happened during the the sacrifice that would take place inside of the Holy of Holies. And a rope was tied around the ankle of the priest. Absolutely. Should, should the priest be found with sin and God strike him dead as being unfit, to be in his presence and to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel so that they could literally pull the priest out. Because if they went in there, they would be struck. Exactly right. So I think we've <laughs> lost that sense of, of, of awe in the presence of God and in realizing that God doesn't have to raise his voice to us. He is God. Well, and you know, the one time that God did handwriting on the wall, you know, we all talk about it, just about handwriting on the wall. The one time God wrote on the wall, 
the message basically was King Belshazzar, you're going to die tonight. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think I can live without handwriting on the wall tonight. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're right. And the other notion here, too, and I learned this years ago in, in debate, um, we have a tendency, human beings, uh, we saw this uh, just last night. You'll probably see it again on Sunday during the debates. As we're trying to, out of frustration, get our point across, we tend to think if we raise our voices, you'll hear us. Yeah, right. And yet, exactly. I learned many, many years ago that if you really want to get the most important point across, don't raise your voice. Instead, lower your voice. And people will lean in and pay more attention. And I think perhaps God is using the same principle with us. He wants us to pay attention, to recognize who he is in the splendor and glory of all of his grace and righteousness and holiness, and realize that he does care. And not only does he care, not only does he want to hear from us, but he also wants us to hear from him as we engage in that that dialogue or that conversation, uh, as you call it in the title of the book, Samuel, so that in and through that, uh, we can not only recognize his voice, but also walk in a deeper level of fellowship and pure relationship with Tim that perhaps a lot of us have never never taken it to that level, never really experienced. I agree with you completely. I, I, you know, Christianity is about relationship. And, and relationship, the heart and soul relationship is really the normal life. It's, it's not, the spectacular is great. You know, don't, don't deny me any of the spectacular. But the heart and soul of a relationship is just the normal, everyday, faithful talking and being together. And, and really, that's what makes life rich. And I think that's what God is inviting us into. I, I believe God wants us to hear his voice every day, almost every day. There's, there's times where he might be silent because he can't tell us something. But I, I really believe that God has something for us and that, as, as you're talking about, he wants, uh, he wants us to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies because the the temple curtain was torn That's right. so that we can enter back into a relationship with him that, that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And, you know, we can probably talk to a lot of wives out there who would say their husbands never learn to listen, and perhaps <laughs> vice versa. Uh, God, I think... Please don't call my wife. <laughs> She's online too, you say? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think, though, that, that, that we can also uh, learn a lot from that. That, that God perhaps would observe that we've never learned to listen to him. We talk a lot about wanting to hear from God, but do we really want to hear from God? Do we want to not only be vulnerable at that level, but take the time to walk in the fellowship and to have the kind of, of intimacy with God that he really wants not only of us, but for us? It's a compelling read and can be a life-changing one for you. Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Newly published by Kriegel Publishers, you'll find it available available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and at Samuel's website, beliefsoftheheart.com. That's beliefsoftheheart.com. And our thanks to Samuel Williamson for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.